Hi, I'm Nathan Ryder, and welcome to the Viber Survivors podcast, where I talk to PhD graduates about their research, their Viber, and life after the PhD. This is episode 21, and today I'm talking to Dr. Jessica Goodman, who recently passed her Viber at the University of Oxford. Jess's research looks at the work and experiences of Carlo Goldoni at the Comédie Italienne in the 18th century. It's fascinating to hear about her research and also interesting to hear about how she prepared for a viva and what happened on the day. Hi Jess, it's really great to, to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so to start off, can you tell us a bit about your research? Um, because it's something that, well, I've had a look at your uh, profile somewhere and uh, I don't really know anything about this kind of area. So it'd be great to hear about it. <laughs> OK, well, I work on 18th century um, French literature and um, specifically French theatre. And um, my thesis, which I can give you the title of, but it's partly in French. So my thesis title was La Gloire et le Malentendu, which means glory and misunderstanding. Goldoni and the Comédie Italienne, 1760 to 93, very excitingly. Um, and basically, um, the thesis itself was about three main things. It was quite, quite it had three different strands of research, but it was working on an Italian theatre based in Paris in the 18th century. Um, and specifically on an Italian author called Carlo Goldoni, who worked there. And he was the author who wrote the original um, version of the play that's been really popular recently, One Man, Two Governors, um, the one with James Cord- that James Corden was in at the National Theatre. So that was the, he, he was the original author of that. And basically what I did was, first of all, look in detail at this theatre and its authors, especially in the 1760s, and not very much work had been done on this particular theatre. So that was quite a historical element. There was a lot of archive research um, in that particular bit of my thesis. And then I looked more in detail at this particular author, um, Carlo Goldoni, and how he went about um, shaping his status and shaping his image as an author, both at the time and then kind of for future generations as well, so for posterity, how he tried to become a celebrity. And then the sort of final strand of my thesis was thinking more broadly about this question of what I called glory or gloire in the period and how an author could become famous and how someone could create their image. Um, And the reason it talks about glory and misunderstanding is because really Carlo Goldoni, who was a foreigner, an Italian who moved to Paris quite late in his life, really didn't understand how to um, play the French system to ensure that he he was sort of remembered um, and he was considered as as famous and glorious. Wow. (laughs) So how did you end up doing this sort of research well, I, so I did uh, French and Italian as an undergraduate, and I really enjoyed working on the 18th century. Um, and so I ended up doing a master's, um, which was based on the Enlightenment, so the 18th century period. Um, the way I ended up doing a master's was probably not particularly conventional. I always wanted to be a journalist. I was determined I was going to be a journalist up until about the night before I started my finals, um, when I suddenly had a big panic and thought, ah, oh, what I like about journalism is writing. It's not so much the news. And what I actually really like writing about is literature. So not to be recommended, but I applied for a master's um, on the first evening of my finals, having done six hours of exams and having six hours of exams the next day. That all went okay. Um, so I did that master's. And but but you know same thing said but I'm definitely not going to carry on doing research and within about a month I was applying for a PhD and I just decided I wanted to carry on using both my languages and I'd been interested in people who moved between the different countries and um, because there was a lot of that happening in the 18th century a lot of exchange between different cultures 
Um, and I particularly enjoyed working on theatre. So this idea of someone who, who moved countries to work in the, in the new theatre at, at the time seemed, seemed an attractive one. And work, a lot of work had been done on Goldoni, but not so much about his time in France and certainly not by people studying French. Weirdly, a lot of the people who work on his time in France are actually Italians. So it seemed like an interesting, an interesting way in to thinking about that period. How does somebody do research in that area then? Because obviously you've got a, a languages background. Yeah. But throughout your, your undergrad and your master's, were you were you focused on literature specifically or was it a broader a broader mix? Um, well, I did my undergraduate at Oxford and it's a very literary course. And so probably, well, well over half your time and half of your exams certainly are based on literature. Um, and that was one of the reasons why I applied for that course in the first place because I really wanted to be able to carry on studying literature um, at the university level. Um, but actually my my master's and particularly my PhD ended up being quite historical. As I say, a lot of my work was archive research. So I actually spent a year in France, in Paris, as part of my um, PhD, um, doing research in the archives of the theatre that I was working on. And that involved me spending three months transcribing 18th century scribbles, um, which were, I, I even did things like um, how much authors were paid and how much money different plays made and stuff like that. Um, so that, so they, were, they were graphs in my thesis. It was very exciting. Um, graphs and <laughs> tables and all sorts of things. Um, so, so mine was a slightly more historical approach than perhaps other literary scholars. But then equally, other elements were reading. I mean, I spent a long time reading the, the memoirs, the sort of journals that Goldoni wrote himself and trying to understand why he said the things he did, why, what kind of image he was trying to present. Also looking at the plays that he wrote, um, the plays that he wrote for Paris, but also the plays that he sent back to Italy during his time in Paris and how they might kind of reflect some of the ideas that he was worrying about in terms of his image um, and in terms of the problems he was facing in this theatre, for example. So it's quite a wide range, but I liked that, that it was very, it was, it was, I was never doing the same thing two days in a row, apart from when I was transcribing the registers. That was three months of doing exactly the same thing every day. <laughs> <laughs> what sort of conclusions did you reach? Or I guess maybe in this kind of area, what sort of things did you find that were interesting? Um, well, as I say, there were these three sort of different strands of my thesis. And that was the way I always tried to, to think about it. Or certainly as I got towards the end, I realised this is how it was structured. And in terms of looking at the theatre itself, um, which, as I say, hadn't been particularly uh, studied in detail, I found that actually at the time, it was. It had a relatively similar status to the other main theatre in Paris at the time, the Comédie Française. So I worked on the Comédie Italienne, the Italian theatre. Um, but it actually had had a very similar status to the French theatre at the time, um, which people had tended not to realise. People had tended to dismiss this Italian theatre, and so that meant that you know by looking at things like how much people paid to go to this theatre, how many people went every day compared to the other theatres, the kind of money that they were paying their authors. Um, the kind of different genres that were being performed, I was able to show a sort of level of parity, which is interesting in itself because, as I say, um, people have tended to dismiss it in the past. But then in terms of Goldoni, um, I showed partly that he really, really wanted this kind of um, image in posterity. He wanted to be seen as, a, as having had success in France and having been part of the French literary society but he just didn't get it. And he, he had one successful play at this French theatre as opposed to the Italian theatre. And he thought that was it. He thought he was made. Um, and, and so he didn't maybe put as much effort into creating his image in other ways as he had in Italy. But as a result, it didn't really work. And he wasn't he hasn't really ever been considered as a sort of having made it as a French author. And um, it's quite a sad story, really. He died in poverty. No one knows where he's buried. And, you know, 
So in comparison to how he sort of thought he'd made it in France, it was quite sad. And then in terms of that, the third point, um, glory, the, the first thing that was really important was, was how you make an image focusing very much on publication and what you write um, in terms of the, the sort of literature that you produce, but also what you write about yourself and what other people write about you. And particularly the importance of that last thing, that the idea that it's the audience, really, it's the, it's the public that make your image, um, both at the time and in the future. So in the end, you kind of lose control um, over, over how you're remembered, really. Wow. <laughs> in many ways, it sounds like things haven't changed a lot in the last 200 years. No, definitely not. Um, and I mean, celebrity studies now is, is, is a really big thing and it's a really sort of, you know, getting to be a, a sort of trendy area. But, you know, it, you can take it. The 18th century is definitely viewed as a time when this sort of idea of the modern celebrities started to come into being because just because partly there were these ways of um, transmitting um, people's image across across um, Europe and across the world because of the culture of writing letters, because of people things like the Grand Tour where people would travel around European cities. Um, so there was a lot more of a sense of building up a sort of international profile as well. Um, and certainly this idea of the, the development of what, what gets called the public sphere. Um, so the idea that kind of people become important as creating um, creating someone's importance and status. It's no longer just kind of people who are um, powerful because of war or because of being an aristoc um, aristocrat, for example, that people can kind of, it's the public that are able to create importance in this period. Yeah. Um, that sounds really fascinating. And I feel like I could ask uh, 101 of the questions. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, I think we have to move on to, I guess, towards the end of your PhD. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to ask about your well about the run-up to your viva so uh, when did you submit your thesis so it was it was all slightly manic i submitted my thesis on about the 4th of april this year so 2013 and um, in the five months prior to handing in we'd been having a huge amount of work done, done on our house um so it was all being complete chaos and there were two of us trying to submit our thesis at the same time um and two days after submitting my thesis i moved to italy so it was all very much kind of um, fairly, fairly crucially timed. Um, but I then, about four weeks later or so, three weeks later maybe, I heard about my Viva date. Um, okay. And my Viva, sorry, do you want me to carry on with that or do you want? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I heard about my Viva date and my Viva was on the, the 22nd of May, which also happened to be my birthday. So that was a nice surprise. Oh. <laughs> When they sent me the date, I thought, you know, I've had every other set of exams on my birthday, but you could choose literally any date in the world, and you've chosen my birthday, so that was good. So, what did you what did you do to prepare for your Viva? Well, I think the day I found, I so I had about three weeks notice of when my Viva was going to be, and I think the day that I found out, I had this kind of slightly panicked reading every bit of advice I could find everywhere, partly on the basis that I thought if I do it all in one go, then I can't then, you know, procrastinate the rest of the time by trying to find advice. So I Googled, you know, endless PhD advice and I read all the information I'd been given. I'd been given, um, I went to a PhD workshop in Oxford back in February, I think. Um, and I listened to podcasts and all sorts of things. So I did that for a while and got together a sort of plan of what I was going to do in terms of preparation, which included a list of questions, sort of generic questions that I thought might be asked based on what I'd seen, but also specific questions to my thesis that I thought they might be likely to bring up. And, and then I went back to my thesis. I hadn't read it in those three weeks. 
And so I made sure that the first reading I did, I was the, I was trying to be very critical because I thought that was the closest I was going to get to reading it as a, as an outsider. Um, and I stuck about a billion post-its all over my thesis, um, as lots of people do, I think, um, looking, trying to look at three different things, basically looking at partly just finding typos and things so that I could make a list so that I could go in knowing that, they, you know, what the errors were going to be. And um, partly looking at areas that I thought might be problematic where they might pick me up on, oh, you haven't, could you explain this a bit more or um, what exactly do you mean by this? And then looking also at areas that I thought were really important um, so that that would help me in putting together kind of overviews of different chapters and also the thesis as a whole. Um, and then I think I read it through maybe a couple more times in that period. One of the times I also wrote a summary of each or of each section um, within chapters so that I could, again, build up a sort of bigger picture. Because I think the, the thing that I really wanted to do is make sure I knew my thesis, and this is what everyone says, but made sure I knew it really well. And part of that was knowing what the function of each section and the function of each chapter, because as, I, as I've explained, they're quite wide ranging. So and they, how they fit together isn't necessarily straightforward. Um, and then I went through the questions that I prepared for myself and sort of thought, how would I answer these? Um, tried to think about um, how I could expand different areas of my thesis. And really also one of the important things I tried to do was think about the broader implications of what I'd written you know, how it fitted into what other people had done and how it might fit in with what I was going to do next and, and things like that. Wow. Um, did you have a mock fiver or was being in Italy kind of an impediment to that? Um, I didn't have a mock fiver, but the day, so I didn't come back to Oxford until literally the day before my visa. But I did meet with my supervisor that afternoon um, and had a bit of a chat to him, um, had lunch with him, talked a bit about um, other things just to relax me. And then he, he just asked me a few questions, which was good because they weren't necessarily things that I'd thought of. As it happened, they weren't things that came up in the fiver. Um, but it just helped me to think, yes, I can answer the questions that I hadn't expected. Um, and he'd also told me to have a think about... Um, not exactly a presentation, but to have a think about how I would just give a very brief summary of what I'd done, what my hypothesis had been, what results I'd found and any problems. Um, so I had a sort of five minute little spiel prepared just in case. So I talked to him about that as well. Cool. Um, and I realised, I mean, this maybe I could have asked this question earlier. Was your was your, P, was your thesis written in French or was it a case of uh, translating parts or how did that work and um, um, the thesis is written in English um, which is generally yeah. what you do with modern languages theses although there were quotes in both French and Italian because obviously I was working sure. as an author but um, the, the slightly odd part was that my supervisor is French and so we've always talked about my work in French so actually when I had this meeting with him the day before I said no I'm going to have to talk to you in English because I'm going to do my viva in English tomorrow and I have to practice speaking yeah. speak English about my work so it was quite odd from that point of view uh, what happened in the Viva then? So, because you, your supervisor had mentioned thinking about how you would uh, give an overview rather than say a, a presentation, but how did your Viva start? Um, well, I actually started off by getting lost, which was good. Um, <laughs> but once I found the right room, and luckily I was really super in advance, so it was fine. Um, it was actually really nice because they started off by saying we enjoyed reading your thesis and we think it's good that someone's doing this kind of work. So that was a really nice beginning, um, and then fairly much as expected they just asked me to sort of I think they said you know what what is your thesis or what are your theses as, as I've explained there are various strands in my thesis 
um, and, and what kind of contribution does that make? So that was quite nice because that was something I could probably have, you know, I could have anticipated um, and it just let me calm down a bit. But then, but it wasn't a kind of formal presentation or anything. But then after that, the questions got quite specific quite quickly, actually. Um, and there wasn't a sort of move from broad to specific because of these various different strands of my thesis. It was a lot of, uh, it was quite a mixture of different things. Um, so they did things like, talked about a specific theorist that I'd used and tried to push me further on whether, on precisely how I'd applied them um, and whether I could maybe, maybe have been a bit more critical about some of them. They asked about the sort of choices I'd made and what I'd included because I'd had to be quite uh, ruthless, really, in including only certain elements of things. Um, they asked about my archive work, a whole range of different things, really. So how long was your viva in total? Um, it was two and a quarter hours. Slightly longer than I was expecting, actually. Um, I know compared to science, science vivas, that's nothing. But, um, you know, I, I knew other people who'd had sort of an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half or something like that. So um, the first about an hour and a quarter went really quickly. And then there was a clock sort of to my left. And I suddenly glanced at it after that time. and thought, oh, gosh, it's going really fast. And then after that, I was really conscious of the rest of the time. Uh, but but, but yeah. I, wasn't, I, actually, I actually enjoyed it. And that sounds like such a kind of cliche, but I really did enjoy it. And it, it, it helped that I knew both of the examiners beforehand. I had contact with them at conferences and things like that. So it did feel like more of a discussion of my work with people who are really interested in it which was nice um but yeah the last the last half an hour in particular I kept thinking I just need to go now <laughs> so um, were there any <laughs> were there were there any stressful moments uh, um the the pushing on one of the theorists I sort of thought if they go any further with this I'm just not going to know what to say anymore so that's like panicked me slightly but I think and then there were there was there was one that wasn't particularly stressful, but just quite funny, where we were having a discussion as to, in fact, whether someone I'd quoted was male or female, and none of us knew, which was, so that was what we had to go and look up afterwards. But, um, but no, I mean, I, as I said, I was, I was very nervous at the beginning, but they were quite good at relaxing me. And generally, I didn't think, the questions were challenging, but not kind of combative, which was what I'd hoped, they'd, hoped it would be, really. Yeah. Um, were there any surprises? Was there anything you weren't expecting? Um, I think in terms of the sort of specifics of the questions, they weren't necessarily the things I'd identify. I mean, things like there were two elements that I thought, oh, they're going to ask me about this and it's really difficult. And I spent ages thinking, how will I respond to that? And actually, you know, they weren't mentioned at all, whereas the things that they did bring up were things that I hadn't necessarily thought would be particularly um, of interest to them or problematic or whatever. I don't think you're ever going to be able to predict the precise questions. But aside from that, it was relatively, it was similar to what I'd expected, really. Okay. And did you discuss um, what you might do next with uh, with your thesis work or where you might take things further? Yeah, this, uh, this is something I was really pleased with, actually, because, it, I mean, in arts, really, the sort of the aim is to try and publish your thesis as a book. Um, and they actually mentioned it off their own back, which was really nice. Um, they said at, at a certain point, um, when you when you offer this for publication, because we do hope you will offer this for publication. So that was that was really nice as well. That made me feel like they liked my thesis. Um, and we had a bit more of a chat about that at the end and how precisely that might, you know, how I might go about changing the thesis to, to work as a book and things. So that was useful as well. Because I'd already published elements, particularly of one chapter. I had about 
yeah, three three articles that had come out of it already. So, so part of it had already been published. But <clears throat> this idea about being able to get a monograph is, is really quite crucial, I think, in art subjects. Great. So, how did you feel uh, after the Viva was finished? Then it was a bit of an anticlimax, as I'd been warned it would be. Um, not least because the Oxford system is really, really odd, and they're not allowed to tell you your result. Um, so actually, the way it ended was we had a bit of a chat for the last 15 minutes about um, some things to do with formatting of bibliography and things like that. And then they sort of said, OK, well, we'll send you the, 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 the small changes that we want you to make. And they don't affect the intellectual content of your thesis. And that was kind of it. So it was sort of, I think I have minor corrections, but I'm not entirely sure. It was one of those really odd things because um, they're not allowed to say it outright. And in fact, I still haven't had an official letter, but I have been sent my corrections, which said on the top minor corrections. So, so uh, <laughs> at this point, I feel like it's probably OK to say that's what I've got. But, um, but yeah, so it's really odd, actually, from that point of view. Um, but it was my birthday, so I went to the pub and, you know, that was all good. <laughs> Great. And so your corrections are just things like uh, spellings and typos, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm trying. To, I'm starting to do them today. They're, they're they're typos. There's the odd kind of is this the right date? There's the obviously changing the gender of the person who I who I got wrong, um, that sort of thing. But nothing. nothing uh, are, are they living? The person is. Um, I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's. Let, we won't mention them by name in case they're listening. Okay. <laughs> So what have you been doing recently then? Because you mentioned uh, moving to Italy. What, what's that yeah. for? Well, I, it's slightly cheeky, actually. I'm, I'm here for six months um, because my boyfriend who has got a six-month research placement. Uh, he's a physicist uh, in Turin. And because I did Italian, I thought it was an excellent excuse to come along too. Um, and so I've had, I had quite a few little bits of academic stuff sort of left over. I had a couple of reviews to write and I had an article to work on and I'm doing a bit of editing for something. Um, and I've also been doing some translation. Um, sadly, not interesting literary translation, boring EU translations. But I'm doing that for six months on the basis that I have then from October, I'm going to be um, in Cambridge at Clare College as a junior research fellow. Um, so this is quite a nice sort of six month semi, semi holiday in between and an excuse to speak more Italian, which is also nice. And so what sort of things are you hoping to do at Clare College then? Are you going to continue this research or is it a move into other areas? Uh, well, I'm, I mean, I'm, I am going to hope, hopefully start working on a sort of book proposal based on based on the thesis. But the new project that I'm going to be working on is linked to the idea of, of glory and fame that we were talking about um, earlier, which was a sort of a theoretical side of my thesis. But it's to do with um, the posthumous image of authors more generally, particularly by looking at um, there's a whole series of plays and dialogues set in hell and in heaven. And um, so I'm going to be looking at these plays and dialogues with authors in them and looking at kind of how they're presented and what that tells us about how they were viewed in life and how they were viewed um, after their death. And so are there any uh, particular authors that we might be familiar with? Some of the authors that are in these plays, Voltaire and Rousseau, for example, appear. And I think okay. they're probably the first ones that I look at because I know more about their kind of image after, after death than I do about other people. So that would be quite a good starting point. But the authors of the plays and the um, dialogues themselves are generally fairly unknown. They're, they're kind of little skits that appear on kind of not official theatres and things like that. So, so there's quite a range, really. Great. What does your PhD mean to you, then? Now that you're, because you, now that you're coming up right, right to the end. Yeah, I think it's 
it's obviously it feels like a, a big achievement although there's still this sort of it's, it's not quite finished because I have to do the corrections and I have to fill in all the forms and you know I won't graduate for a while but the sense of actually when you look at it you know that volume that's like a telephone directory sitting on the table next to you that that feels like a big achievement but it also I think more than that especially after the Viva it, it's the beginning of something else it's a sort of people say you know that your Viva is your kind of initiation in a way into into the academic world and that, that sounds like a bit a bit cheesy but in some ways it is it's the beginning of you being a colleague of these people and in, in fact one of the my external examiners from Cambridge and he said at the end oh so are we now colleagues because he heard about my my job and that kind of felt really nice that felt like you know that this is the beginning of, of my career now um, and and the PhD allowed you to do that yeah well that's really nice we're almost at the end of the podcast and there's just two questions left um which are basically asking you for advice for people who are listening. So if you're happy, um, my penultimate question is, uh, what advice would you give someone who is starting a PhD? I think right before you even write your proposal, I would say the first thing is to choose something that you love and that you can still see yourself loving three or four years down the line, because that's so important. And particularly in art subjects where you're choosing, you're more likely to be choosing your own topic rather than sort of fitting into a project. Secondly, I would say organisation from the very beginning, um, working out how you're going to take notes, working out how you're going to, you know, making sure you keep all the page numbers of all your references, that you keep all the the, um, the details about the books that you've quoted and things, because it's not fun in the last kind of two weeks of panic to have to go and try and find a book and find a quote again. So that's really crucial. Um, and I think the third thing I'd say, actually, is using the PhD, like not just seeing the PhD as a thesis at all, because there's so much more you can do as a PhD student other than just writing your thesis. And I think it's actually really important to do those other things now, particularly as both the academic job market and the kind of much broader job market get more competitive. So taking advantage of the time as a PhD PhD student to see it as a sort of almost like a training scheme in a way that you can do so many other things like teaching, like organising conferences, like doing skills training um, and all sorts of other things. So I think really taking advantage of that is important. Yeah, yeah, I really, I've, I can't agree with that more, actually. It's, it's so important now. A last question then is, what advice would you give someone who is preparing for their Viva? I think the first thing is something that I've heard and seen hundreds of other people say on this, but it's just to know your thesis, because in the end, if you know your thesis, you will be able to answer most questions, even if that is with that's not in my thesis or you know that's not something I considered but knowing your thesis well is the main thing um but also seeing it as something to enjoy if at all possible because it is a privilege to have that time with experts and you know it's the most interested anyone's going to be in your work you know for that length of time I think for a very <laughs> for a lot of your career so that's a real privilege um and also I think the last thing I'd say is trying to make sure you look at the bigger picture when you're thinking through your thesis before your viva. Don't get bogged down too much in those tiny details um, because what's important is to see how, they, how it kind of fits into to, to broader areas of research um, and what the kind of bigger significance of what you've done is. Thank you very, very much for sharing that, Jess. It's been great to have you on the podcast. That's OK. Thank you very much. That's all for episode 21. Many thanks again to Jess for sharing her research and her Viber experiences on the podcast. If you'd like to share your story on the podcast or you just have questions or comments about any of the episodes, then get in touch either by leaving comments on the site, emailing 
podcast at viva-survivors.com or tweeting either Viva Survivors or me, Dr Ryder. There'll be a new episode up soon and until then, I'm Nathan Ryder and thanks for listening.